Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 46, Cadwallon, Hero or Villain? The sea rushes in, it casts forth a host arrayed for battle, the host of Cadwallon, in the triumph of his objective, an opponent like a furious fiery stag. Copious are his battle steeds, and the largesse of his mead feasting. His praise is known over the vast sea. It sails by the southern wind over the ocean, like the ship of the chieftains of a foreign host. The stag who maintains righteousness and gives refuge to his men. Never was there more generous a son so auspiciously born. As an exalted and privileged axle of the valorous one went to feats. Miserly kings are silenced before the bounteous one. They have grown since the birth of a profoundly gifted champion of the Welsh people, and when Christ created Cadwallon. For the Welsh, at least in the later history of Wales, Cadwallon is a hero. Cadwallon is the last true king of Britain. He is the last leader against the Saxons who will gain more than lose. At least in the sense that he defeated the Northumbrians, as we mentioned last week. When we tossed last week about Cathwallon as part of the three C's that spelled doom, he was perceived as part of the problem instead of part of the solution. This week I want to discuss how this King of Britain, as Bede called him, is a hero or a villain, and how he, his efforts were defining moments in the battle between the Welsh and, at the very least, Northumbria. And when you look at the history of this time period, of course, we're always talking about the fact that it's very sketchy. The information we have is difficult to parse because there's not a lot of it. And specifically in this case, we have a very um, jaded perspective because Bede, in his uh, writings, presents a Cadwallon who is a villain. He is the man who ruined Northumbria. He's the man who killed the king killed his obvious heirs and basically ruined the landscape for the better part of a year before finally he was held to account by a mighty man who would lay waste to him and defeat him. And that is the presentation we have from the, the Saxon side. From the Welsh perspective, and at least from this poem, we have this idea in praise of Cadwallon. And it's it's very much a part of Welsh literature that Cadwallon is not a villain. He is kind of the last superhero of Wales. He is the man who actually took it to the Saxons and defeated them. And in a way came very close to reuniting Britain under the Welsh auspices. 
and in fact kind of turned Bede's writings on its head, because Bede talks about the fact that Cadwallon's efforts were to actually murder the Saxons, to kill everyone, man, woman, and child, so that he could defeat and destroy and throw off all of the Saxons that were living in the region. Of course, that's the perspective of one person, because one of the the things that even Bede recognizes is that Cadwallon didn't do this alone. He had the support of a very powerful king in Penda, who was the king of Mercia at the time. And obviously, Mercians are Saxons, or at least Angles, and thus, they aren't the Welsh, they aren't the British, if you want to call them that. So they wouldn't have a stake in trying to destroy the people of Northumbria. So likely this is a bit of hyperbole by Bede to kind of make it look like he was much worse than he probably was. I think part of the reason is, and and he makes mention of the fact that they actually hold this in memory, this whole period is considered so awful, it's held in memory of the of the Northumbrians to this point in their history, and we're talking about a hundred years later or so. So from that perspective, it's a very big situation and a very big moment in Bede's uh, discussion points on this part of history. And realistically, you can understand why, if you're on that losing side, if this man is perceived as having killed so many, that you would put down to him a lot of sins. And I think from that perspective, you can kind of understand. We do this, you know, Welsh history does this on the opposite side. Uh, Most Welsh historians would have a different perspective on Edward I than, say, an English historian who's looking at it from the Plantagenet point of view. You don't have the same perspective on these individuals that you have in different times and different writings because of that. I mean, obviously, just reading from that one poem, we have a Welsh perspective which looks at him as a hero. In some ways, he's very Arthinian in the way he's written. You know, he's a legendary figure who took the took the fight back to the Saxons who had made their lives so miserable in their perspective of the time. And so he, you know, some anyone who can do that is perceived to be a hero. Anytime you have someone who can you know, show up the other side, instantly they become legendary in the way we look at them and, and we consider them. Now, of course, Cadwallon's not a big hero recognized everywhere because I think of three things. One, he gets killed straight away. <laughs> I mean, he's only really victorious for about a year in Northumbria before he is killed. Two, there isn't a lot of writings outside of a couple of sources that we can legitimately call historical. There are epic poems and things like that, but those are, as we saw with Yggdrasil, you can't take them at face value. They're not meant to be taken at face value. They're they're an epic story. They're an epic eulogy of that person. So in a way, they're not meant to be taken from that perspective. But at the same time, in a way, that, that propaganda that they give builds up the people. I mean, if you think about it, if you go, you know, you're talking to your children or you're talking to your relatives and you're saying, you know, there was a time when we did this. We achieved this. I mean, think about how, like, Americans talk about the moon landings. And in in a way, we all do. But, but as an American, we did that. We got to the moon. And when I say we, it's more of a 
if I was an American. Um, even though it wasn't we who did that, it was actually Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin and, and Michael Collins. It's not, it's not us. And it's NASA and the scientists and all the people who put the money and effort and everything. And so the we is kind of a, a, a royal we, if you want to put it that way. But when we look back at it from a historical standpoint or, or in the future, as we talk about it in our stories, in our movies, in our, in our YouTube videos or whatever, we, we have a perspective that makes it so much more powerful and so much, I mean, it's a powerful circumstance and it's unusual, but now you're adding even more of a mythology to it. And I think this is sort of the same way with Cadwallon. Cadwallon to me, in some ways, is probably more Arthur than Arthur in the perspective of at least the Welsh in this period. You know, anybody who can win against the, the, the bad guys, it, whatever your perspective is on what a bad guy is, is going to be a hero to these people. And certainly in later Welsh history, he's looked on as a hero. And if he wasn't, there wouldn't be as many epic poetry about him. And it's an interesting sort of situation where you have this figure who comes, you know, he's an exile in Ireland who returns to Wales in the stories and then starts to fight back. There's actually one bit of writing, which is just basically his battle lists, which go on about how he won this battle and then he took him on in this you know, and it's just a string of winds and winds building upon themselves. And in a way, it makes sense that we would have that because it's coming out of Gwyneth. Gwyneth being the one most powerful kingdom that survives so much. And because of that, has given us a lot of what we know about medieval Wales. And from those perspectives, we have something that is very powerful. And so Cadwallon is... I guess I want to say sort of magnified because of that. Now, interestingly enough, there is another perspective on Cadwallon, and it's one that's very different. It's it's a unique perspective, in my opinion. But it does have some, not I wouldn't say validity, that, and I'm not saying it's not a valid argument. I actually think it's a very interesting argument, and it might be a valid argument, but more the fact that it, it goes against the grain of everything we know at least from a historical standpoint, from what little source material we have, in that Bede never tells us where Cadwallon's from. The only definition he gives us is that he's a king of Britain and that he went and wrecked Northumbria. He doesn't say he's from Wales. He doesn't say he's from Gwyneth. He doesn't say he's from Elmet or any of these other normal British kingdoms. He doesn't give a location. That all comes to us in later times and through later lists, and through later writings. And so we don't have a good perspective on who and what he was doing. And so in a way, it actually could be that what we've done is misinterpret based on later sources where this man have, has originated. The first mention that we actually have of Cadwallon being a king of uh, Gwyneth is actually coming from the Historia Britonium uh, from Ninius, or the History of Britain. That's the first mention, and this is from a 9th century source, 100 years further along the line from Bede. Historian Alex Wolfe from the University of uh, St. Andrews actually has put forward a plausible argument, at least, that because this specific mention is only in two sources of this particular document, 
that it may not be an original uh, writing, that it may have been something added afterwards, because as people sort of built context, they would add this additional concept that he was the king of, of Gwyneth, and that there is no, nothing really that identifies that being the case. He, in fact, makes a compelling argument in the, the idea that Cadwallon, as king of Gwyneth, would be unlikely to spend an entire year in Northumbria at the time, and that it does make more sense that actually Cadwallon may have come from the north, not from the west, and that his alliance with Penda was not one of common military battle, but rather some sort of either financial or military arms kind of way, because he says he supports him uh, in Bede's writings. He doesn't say that he comes and fights with him. So if there's an alliance, but it's not a physical alliance, it would make sense that he'd be sending supplies or some other sort of way if they're separate. Obviously, at this point in time, the other question, I guess, is really, is that at this point, Mercia and Powys are in the middle of a war. There's constant fighting between the two sides as, as Mercia is trying to take more and more territory and pushing into the edges of eastern Wales. So you would have to imagine that there would be... If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals, so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. A lot of conflict between the two sides, and for the most part, Powis was in between the two of them. So 
there could be some arguments made that Gwyneth is the location of Cadwallon because a natural ally to Gwyneth against Powys would be Mercia. And we know that those two sides didn't often see eye to eye, and in fact quite often were fighting against each other as much as they were fighting against the Saxons. So it could feasibly be, again, that the argument could be had he's from Gwyneth, and that for whatever reason he spent a year in Northumbria trying to gain control of it. Maybe he was trying to expand his power base. Who knows? But I think there is some compelling arguments to be made, and I, I think Professor Wolf has done a very good job of making them, uh, that maybe what we're getting is yet another old, old North king who is getting mixed into the Welsh ideas about kings, be, probably because of his heroism. It, you know, it makes some sense for later generations who are looking up to this king. Why would you say he's from a kingdom which has been destroyed? It makes it much more palatable to say he's a king from your neck of the woods. There becomes kind of a tradition of, of taking, uh, to kind of make a claim for yourself, one of the things you do is you make a claim based on an ancestor, right? I mean, obviously, I'm a descendant of both the gods and, and a descendant of this great hero of ours. You know, obviously, that's the case, right? So, and if you want to look at it, there was actually quite a tradition in the early medieval period of being a descendant of Jesus and a descendant of Thor and a descendant of Odin. <laughs> you know, so this concept that these kings would need or would use someone of this caliber as kind of an evidence of their own nobility would make some sense. And I think there is in what he's arguing, a very good chance that it could be that what we're seeing is not a king based in Wales, but a king based in the north, who was killed by eventually by Oswald, the king of Bernicia. So the idea and the concepts that that are being raised here is that this might have been more of a local battle, and that the idea that he was a king of Britain, I guess makes some sense if he brings in allies from the British tribes to help, or British kingdoms to help him fight this war, if he allies himself with a bunch of them. So maybe there were Welsh troops involved with this battle of the Old North versus Northumbria. Maybe he is a king of Gwyneth who then brings in help from other kingdoms. Obviously, the, the Old North has a stake in this battle because Northumbria is putting pressure on them. By this point and in the future, they will continue to push north, and they will continue to cause havoc for the British for quite some time to come. Northumbria, of course, becomes one of the most powerful kingdoms in all of Britain at this stage. And so the difficulty of dealing with this group will continue for the Welsh and for the Old North for quite some time. And in fact, one could argue that effectively the Northumbrians neuter the Old North to the point where there's one kingdom left, which clings on past the Viking Age. And realistically, the old British standards and the old British ability to defend themselves in the north becomes more and more compromised by the pressure that they're getting from the Picts, the Irish, and the Angles in the northern part of England. And so you can kind of see that it would make sense that this was more a battle between those sides rather than a battle that includes a western nation. But the question mark is, Northumbria is said to have invaded Gwyneth and had 
caused problems for Gwyneth and actually had made them a sub-kingdom, if that's the case, then we have an understanding of why Gwyneth would have an interest in trying to take down the power base. Bede actually says that, that Cadwallon is revolting against Edwin, and not that he is like just a, uh, a separate king who's fighting his own war, but rather that he's actually coming straight into conflict with this group because he is a sub-king who decides he doesn't want to be sub-king anymore. And thanks to Penda, who would obviously have a stake in this, because if Northumbria is a rising power and Penda and Mercia are also a rising power, it doesn't serve their interest to have two rising powers, particularly bumping against each other on the borders of the north. So for Penda, it makes perfect sense to try and neuter that before it gets going too far. And so there's this combined sort of question of what's the motives, who would have the best motives, and why? And there's a lot of arguments on all sides. I, I do think that there can be a point raised that this is an Old North king, but there's also a lot of evidence that still could explain it as being a, a, him as a king of Gwyneth and, and a descendant of that line. But we have to measure these things on both angles. And I think, like I said, because the evidence is so shaky, because what we understand is so permeated on fiction and legend, we can't just accept what's being told to us. I mean, most of what we understand about Cadwallon and his story comes actually from something different and something much more unique like I say, from, a, from poetry and from guys like Geoffrey of Monmouth, who you can't trust, and rather than sources that are closer to the situation. And in fact, much like Arthur, much like Merlin, much like, heck, even Aurelius Ambrosius, we don't get a good idea who this person is. And there's so little information that you could literally drive a truck through it and Everybody could be right. I mean, at the end of the day, he could be a Northern Scot Brit, or he could be a Western Welshman. He could be Irish, for all we know. We just were guessing and kind of sticking out flags to kind of say, yeah, this is where he's from. And another person sticks out a flag and says, no, this is where he's from. And unfortunately, much like Arthur, we can't say one way or the other. All we can say is the evidence that we have says this. Does it tell us enough to say Cadwallon, the hero of the North Welsh, is a old northern king or a western king? And again, as I've just said for the last minute or so, there isn't evidence of that. But what we can say is that Cadwallon is the last British king to really cause problems for the Angles and the Saxons in a way where their position as a kingdom was threatened. He's the last great British king whose power is so strong that he could have shook the very foundations of the Anglo-Saxon settlement, but he doesn't. And he, in fact, even though he kills up to three different kings over a time period of a few years, realistically, depending on who you believe, of course, that some of the sources say in a year, other sources or other academics have suggested that that just may be a a misnomer to make it very convenient, and that these things may have happened over a wider period of time. Again, that argument is very much valid, and we just don't have enough information to say one way or the other. What we do know is, is that he was 
considered such a legend that people started to write epic poems about him. And we know that there's very little Welsh historical poetry and mythology around figures unless they were considered to be important enough to have them. And Cadwallon's really one of the first mostly historical figures we have evidence of. And, I mean, even Ambrosius is only mentioned by Gildas and is not really understood in what he's mentioned other than the fact that he has some sort of linkage to nobility in the Roman-British idea. And we don't have anything else beyond that. He's a heroic figure to Gildas, but is he a legitimate heroic figure? Is that even his real name? Nobody really knows. And Arthur, of course, we've done an entire episode about how legendary and how mysterious and how not to be trusted the ideas about him are. And at some point, we're going to have to take on Jeffrey Monmouth, who's kind of a problem child for us when it comes to this issue. Hopefully, we can kind of deal with him quickly and, and discuss some of his ideas and how they influence the stories we have and why so often our understanding of the early medieval period is skewed because of him and why his source material is so vague and so unhelpful. But we'll get to that a little later. We'll probably cover it as we get closer to the uh, Norman period because that's kind of when he's writing from. And... Certainly, we'll get on to other topics beyond this for now. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, we are very excited about the next few that are coming up. I, I can't wait to continue this discussion with you all. If you have any comments, questions, concerns, you can reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. You can reach me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod. If you want to talk to me about other subjects, such as the other podcast I run, which is Fate of Heroes, you can do that at my personal account, which is at JohnDMP on Twitter. Uh, you can also reach us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. And please, any questions, comments, you can also send there. And uh, if you have any other thoughts, opinions, please express them because I'm always, I'm always curious about everybody else's point of view. And hopefully, maybe we can continue to discuss some of these things. And, and I'm Always curious to continue these discussions and uh, always curious for your opinions on them because I think it's, it's an important measure that I'm kind of going down the right path with all this discussion. But I hope you enjoyed this episode and uh, we'll see you all later. Take care, everybody. Bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. For more information, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.